right off the bat, first thing, our students are leaving for student camp today, and so if you've been confused that you thought there's like a Tasmanian devil whirling around here, that is actually Eric Moreno, our student pastor, trying to get everything squared away by 1.30. I came in, I was like, you ready? And he was like, I will be by 1.30. <laughs> and so here in just a second, we're going to pray uh, for Eric and our students as they get ready to head out for the week. And I just wanted you to know that you could be praying for them all week. That would be awesome, just that God would speak to them this week, reveal himself to them, that they would, yeah, have a great time uh, at camp, have a great time with each other, but most of all, that they would encounter God this week. And so we're going to pray for that in just a second. We're doing something a little different again this morning in terms of our time of study together. I've been telling you for a few weeks that I thought it would be worthwhile um, for a week to focus on the biblical teaching of what we call the Trinity, the idea that we have one God and that somehow in the nature of who God is within this one single God who is the only true God, that there are three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Not three separate gods, not three distinct gods, only one God, but three persons within that God. And I know like as soon as I say it, it doesn't make sense to us. And <laughs> that's where we'll start today, maybe is talking a little bit about why it doesn't make sense to us. But I've put a selection of scriptures in your bulletin today that I believe are the biblical foundation. And we could have done a lot more. I, I, I tried to keep it just focused. Biblical foundation for why we say the Bible does teach us. Because if the Bible doesn't teach it, we don't have to worry about it at all. But if the Bible does teach it, then we've got to wrestle with it. We've got to say, okay, so this is who God is, whether it makes sense to us or not. This is how God reveals himself, whether we fully understand it or not. And I believe that as we look at these verses, you'll say, okay, yeah, this is clearly what's in the Bible. So then what's the best way for us to think about that? Like, to, to whatever extent we can, and we're not going to fully get there, what's the best way for us to try to understand this? And if this is true about God, if this is who God is, then what does that mean for us? Like, what are some of the applications and implications and truths that grow out of this if this is the nature of God um, that, that it means for us as his people, as his church, how we should understand all of life and the world? So that's what we're going to work on today. And, you know, every week I encourage us that we're coming in here with these things in mind. Depend on God, that he's going to have to speak and reveal spiritual truth to us. And that's why we pray, and that's what we're going to do here in just a second. And then the second thing we always say, we're going to focus on God. That knowing who God is, is at the core of everything. And we ask this question, what does this teach about God? And I hope you see that as we look at these scriptures today, and we're saying, hey, do we see the nature and character of God, this teaching of one triune God who is made up of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit? We're at the very heart of what does this teach about God? And we're asking, who is God as he has revealed himself in his word? And then we move on to heart changed by God. That Not just that we would walk away today with a little more information, like, oh, I understand that better. I can explain that better. I can show people the verses that, that make it clear that this is what the Bible teaches. That's all great. Like, it is good for you to have that knowledge, but if it stops there, we've missed what God wants to do in you and in me and in us by revealing himself to us. That he doesn't just give you information for your mind. Even something as 
you know, in a sense, deep and intellectual and, and mentally challenging as the teaching of the Trinity isn't just for your mind, that there are things, and I want us to really work on this towards the end of the day, there are things he wants to do in our heart as he reveals these truths to us and he changes us and makes us more like him and says, I want to build your life and build this church on the truth of who he is. So we want our heart to be changed by God and then empowered by God that whatever God is doing in us or says that he wants to do in us, that we would know he's the only one who can do it, that we're dependent on him to do it. And that's why we wrap up every week and we pray and we say, God, the things that you've shown us today, if it depends on us, it's not going to happen. If we have to go make this happen in our own strength and our own spiritual resources, it will not happen. We need you to do it. We need the promise of your grace that you have given us in Jesus and his gospel. We need your spirit to live in us and, and to make this happen in us and through us. We need you to give us your power to bring about the work that you want done. And so we acknowledge that and we just ask him, do in us what you've told us today. Work this in us and help us to share it with others and show others who you are. And so we're going to follow that same, you know, the, the same approach today depending on God and prayer together here in just a minute, focusing on God as I read this selection of scriptures. of What does this teach us about God and specifically about his triune or three-in-one nature? Heart changed by God. If this is who God is, what's he saying to our hearts right now? And if that's what he's saying to our hearts, we're going to ask him to do that in us. And so that's where we're headed. I'm going to pray for us right now. And let's start by praying together for Eric and our students. Um, and all the chaperones that are going with them this week. And then during this time of prayer, I'll also pray for God to speak to us right now. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time right now. Thank you that because of Jesus, because of his life, death, and resurrection, that you have made us your people. And you've made us part of your family and you have joined us to Jesus and you are our Father. And we can come to you right now and ask for the things that we need. And so in Jesus' name, Father, we come right now and we pray for our students and our whole student ministry as they go to camp this week. And Father, I pray uh, that you will do a great work of grace in their hearts and in their lives this week that you will soften their hearts to the truth of who you are, that you will speak to them and reveal yourself to them and make yourself known in, in new and fresh and deep ways that they haven't known you before, that you would work in their hearts by your Spirit, that you would be changing them and making them more and more like Jesus, that you would be building them up into your church. I pray that you will fill Eric and our leaders with your Spirit this week, that they will be able to point our students to you, that they will see you and know you more. And Father, we, we acknowledge that there's not something like super magical or holy about camp, um, that you are the one who's holy and that you are always with us all the time, everywhere. But I'm thankful for these moments when a lot of the distractions get stripped away and and we're able to focus our hearts and minds more on you without everything else pulling at us. And so I pray that this week for our students, that you would protect them from the distractions of the world and, and all the, the worries and the anxieties and, 
and the desires and the things they would focus on that wouldn't be you. And Father, I pray this would be a time where they really see you this week and encounter you. I pray that you will pour out your spirit the way that you have promised because of Jesus. And that you would be doing a work this week that isn't just limited to this week, but that bears fruit in their life for years and years to come. That this will be a foundation of things that you'll keep doing when they come back. That it won't be one week with you, but a life of following Jesus, a life of knowing you, a life of loving you, a life of trusting you. And they would be able to point back and say, this was one of the ways God did that. This, I remember this week when God chased me down, when God grabbed hold of me and got my attention and showed me who he was. And I pray we'll be able to celebrate that together and that they would bear much fruit as your disciples because of the life that you produce in them. So we pray that this week, Father, over our students and our student ministry and our leaders. And then right now, Father, we ask that you do the exact same thing right now during this time. Teach us by your Spirit from your Word. Reveal yourself to us. Help us to know you more. Father, in the ways that our minds can be opened and can understand better who you are, please do that this morning. And then in the ways that our hearts need to be changed and softened and, and receive the truth about you and respond to the truth about you, please do that in us by your Spirit right now as only you can. We need you to do it. We trust you to do it, Father. Everything we're going to talk about is far beyond me and my ability and far beyond all of us. And so we come needy and dependent on you, trusting you and asking you to do it and believing that you're going to do this right now because of Jesus. And so it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Even as I was praying right there, I heard it. I don't know, I don't know if you realize how much this what we're going to talk about today is at the heart of everything that we do all the time. I'm praying to God the Father. You know, Father, because Jesus taught us to pray that way. The disciples come, Lord, teach us to pray. He says, our Father in heaven. I'm praying to God the Father, and then I say, because of Jesus, the Son, we're asking you to pour out your Spirit. Do you hear right there already this idea of there's these three persons involved in the work that God is doing? Is that the way we should think about God? Like, am I right to pray that way? Am I right to stand up here and say that's who God is and how God's revealed himself? Because it doesn't matter if I say that. It doesn't matter if anybody else in the world says that. It doesn't matter if I pray that way. The question is, has God said that's who he is? So that's why we're starting with these verses today. I want you to see it in the Bible. If you see it in the Bible and we don't understand it, that's okay. Right? We throw our hands up and we say, this is true. It being true doesn't depend on me understanding it. But if we don't see it in the Bible, and we're like, hey, this makes sense to me, but it's not in the Bible, so what? <laughs> you may be wrong. I may be wrong. And what, we're not the authority is the point right here. And so just purely starting with the Bible right here, and then we're going to work from that. The verses, then they're in your bulletin if you want to read along. They'll go be on the screen as well. Starting in Deuteronomy 4.35 here. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, there is no other besides him. And just starting out here that the Bible is clearly teaching there's one God, that the Lord is God, Yahweh, the God who has revealed himself at this point to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, their descendants who become the Jewish people. He is the one true God. There's only one God, and it's the Lord. Isaiah 44, 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, besides me there is no God. 
So again, God clearly saying, I'm the only God, first, last, none other besides me. Isaiah 46, 9, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. It's not just that there isn't another God, there's no other God even like him, similar to him. He's the only God. And he's like, you know, remember, look at all the things I've done. He's pointing back here to creation and the way that he's called out his people and formed this nation of Israel and you know, brought them out of Egypt and out of slavery. He's like, remember everything I've done. I'm the only God. I've shown it. I've proved it. I've showed that I'm the one true God. 1 Timothy, just we had pulled, these are all Old Testament to that point, and so I pulled a New Testament one here. For there is one God, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So the Bible clearly teaches there's only one God. You'd be really hard-pressed to read those verses and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of other verses like that and argue for anything other than the Bible clearly teaches there's one God. So if we want to write that down, there is... Only one God. Now, to sort of dive into the deep end here about this one God, this is John chapter 1, and I pulled out a few verses of John 1 that I think really it's good to fit them together. In the beginning was the Word, and this, you know, in the beginning there, you're hearkening back to Genesis 1-1 there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the beginning that John's talking about. At the very, very beginning, when there's nothing but God, and then God creates everything. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So this one God, whoever he is from the very beginning, the Word has been God. And then in in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, who's that about? Jesus. So this, there's this identity here between Jesus and what John is calling the Word. And that Word is God. So already in John 1, we're getting... So this one God who exists, Jesus is that God. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son. Now John introduces another concept here. From the Father. That... The one who is the Word, who was God from the beginning, is also the Son. But if there's a Son, there's a Father. Right? So we've got one God, but now we have the Word is God, and the Word is Jesus, and the Word is the Son. So the Son is God, but then we have the Father as well, who's God. Full of grace and truth, that the Son is full of grace and truth, for the law was given through Moses. And just in case up to this point you're thinking, hey, you're pre- it just says word and son, it's not Jesus. Well, grace and truth, so here was full of grace and truth up here from the son. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So if you needed John to make it explicit, he makes it explicit for you. The word that he's talking about, the son that he's talking about, who is God, is Jesus. No one, and this is the best part of all in this section, no one's ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So the Son, who is the Word, in other words, the expression of God, the Word is how you communicate, how you make yourself known. So when the Father makes himself known, he speaks through the Son. No one's ever seen God the Father. No one's ever seen God. But God speaks through the Word, who is the Son, who is Jesus Christ, and that's how he makes himself known. You see what he's saying there? Word. <laughs> That was the best timing ever, Eric. That's the best word you've ever dropped. In the beginning was the word. 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But, but really, that, that is, you know, when he says that, it's always in response to we've declared something, stated something, communicated something that feels true to him, and he's responding by saying, hey, that's truth. I hear that. I hear, I hear the truth that's been spoken. And so here Jesus comes speaking the truth of who God is, revealing who God is. And so in this section here now, we've got this tension. There's only one God, but it's the Word and the Son and, and Jesus and the Father. Do you see that so far? Hebrews 1 confirms for us that we're looking at John 1 the right way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. So God speaking through his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And so this here connects back to what we just saw in John 1, right? That in the very beginning when God's creating the Word, who is the Son, is there with the Father, and God is creating through the Word, that Jesus is there before creation, this, what we would call the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, God the Word. He's not created, he's part of the one who's creating, right? It's created through him. He's not created by the Father. He, talking about the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God, and this is the really important phrase here, and the exact imprint of his nature. That the Son has the exact imprint of the Father's nature. Now, if you're a human being, what type of nature do you have? Human nature, right? The, the, the fact that you have a human nature is what makes you a human being. If you have the nature of God, what does that make you? God, right? If you have divine nature, you're divine. If you have human nature, you're human. And you could, if you have the nature of a dog, you're a dog. If you have the nature of a rock, you're a rock. And so for the Son to have the exact imprint of the nature of God is for the Son to be God. And the radiance of the glory of God that Jesus is showing us most fully who God is. That God spoke through the prophets. That's where Hebrews 1 starts. But now he's spoken in a greater, through the word, through his own word, most fully he has made himself known. The prophets were giving us pieces of truth about who God is. They were everything that God gave us in the Old Testament was true about him. But it was, I think this is a good way to think about it. Who God is, we're not even prepared to wrap our minds around it until he starts to give us little baby steps. And so with each piece of truth, he gave us a piece here, a piece here, a piece here, a piece here, until there was enough of the pieces. He had built us up enough to say, okay, now I'm going to tell you who I am most fully. And when he does that, it's through his son. That he sends his son to reveal the fullness of his glory and the fullness of his nature. Not that we can still grasp all of it, but we can say, oh, this is where all those pieces fit together. And that's exactly what happens to the Old Testament when we read it in the right way and that we see that all of it is pointing forward to Jesus and fulfilled in Jesus. All these pieces that we kind of understood and there were these little whispers and hints and glimpses that when they come together in Jesus, like that's how it fits. That's what it means. That's what it was pointing forward to. Here's the bigger picture that shows me where all these pieces go. So that again, though, the Son being a revelation of God in a way that no one else is. The Son revealing not just prophecies from God and not just words from God 
but revealing the very nature of God, that when you see the Son, you see the exact imprint of God's divine nature. Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. So you can listen to what humans say and what humans can understand and human teaching and human religious teaching, or not according to Christ. He's saying, don't be taken captive by all that and not according to Christ. So, or you can listen to Christ. And here's what Christ reveals to you. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It doesn't get much more clear than that. That when you look at Jesus Christ, the fullness, the whole fullness of deity, of the divine nature, of God, is dwelling in that man Jesus Christ bodily. That Jesus is God. He has the fullness of the divine nature in him. So, at this point, there's only one God, but within that God, God is God the Father and God the Son, who's often referred to as the Word and Jesus Christ. This one God is both God the Father and God the Son. And God the Son in John 1 is called the Word. Many times he's called Jesus Christ. And also, as you go through the New Testament, as he's referred to as the Lord Jesus Christ a lot, sometimes they'll just say the Lord. And when they're talking about the Lord, they're usually talking about this second person in the Trinity, God the Son. But then here's Acts 5 complicating things a little bit more for us. But Peter said, this is when Ananias and Sapphira lie. We, we looked at this a few months ago in Acts. I know it's been a while. Like, it took me forever to get through Acts, so Acts 5 is like a long time ago. But Ananias and Sapphira lie about what they're giving to the church, and Peter confronts them in their lie, and he says, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So right here, Peter says, you're lying to the Holy Spirit right now and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to who? So lying to the Holy Spirit is lying to who? Which means the Holy Spirit is God. Do you see that? And just in case you're like, well, that's one spot, I'm not sure. Now the Lord, which this would be Jesus... And we've already established from John 1 and Hebrews 1 and Colossians 2 that Jesus has the full divine nature in him. He's fully God. He's God the Son. The Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so we, the Son has been equated, the Lord, Jesus, has been equated to God, and now he's being equated to the Spirit, which means the Spirit's being equated to God. Do you see that there in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3? And then in Romans 8, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And do you see, first of all, that the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ are interchangeable there? meaning that Christ is God. But to have the Spirit of Christ or the Spirit of God is to be in the Spirit. That this, this is what it's like to be connected to God. To be connected to His Spirit is to be connected to Him. 
And the Spirit of God is the Spirit of Christ, and you get all three there. Over, and so then, God is God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. These three different persons who are all God and all spoken of as God, and even in one sense spoken of interchangeably, where to encounter the Father is to encounter God, and to encounter the Son is to encounter God, and to encounter the Spirit is to encounter God, and to encounter the Spirit of Christ or the Spirit of the Son is to encounter the Spirit of the Father. To encounter the Spirit is to encounter the Lord who is the Son. Do you see all of that just in these verses? And and like I said, we could build a lot more, but it's in the fabric of the whole New Testament. One of the most common places where we blow right past it, what we call the Great Commission. Uh, A lot of times in the Bible, but we're really fond of quoting these verses, and for really good reasons. This is like the parting command that Jesus gives to his church before he ascends into heaven. But watch something that maybe we, we haven't paid enough attention to right here. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name. Do you see singular right there? One name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share in this one name, the name of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because name means more than just what I call you in, in the Bible. It's who you are. It's your character, your nature, that they are united in the very core of who they are. It's not the name of the Father and the name of the Son and the name of the... And it's not the names of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. It's the name, singular, united, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that they are the expression together fully of this name. And then just one more so that you know this isn't something that, well, over time this kind of just developed and we came up with it. Go back to the very beginning of the Bible where the whole thing starts. And remember John 1. In the beginning was the Word, that God speaking and expressing himself, right? And the Word was God. So in the beginning, God, and a lot of times in the Bible, God will either refer to God in his fullness or God refers to God the Father. Um, that, that he is, in their roles within the Trinity, he is the, the leader. <laughs> like the Father, two sons, the, way, the Father sends the Son, the Son willingly obeys the Father. That is their role and their relationship with one another within the Trinity, both fully as God. But, so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God... So right, when God is creating, here's the Spirit of God involved in that act of creation from the very beginning. And we're two verses into the Bible, and you've already got two persons of the Trinity, right? Was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, and there's your third person. Because who was with God in the beginning, according to John 1? The Word. And here's the Word. And the Word is how God creates. That one way to think about it, God is so alive and so full of existence within himself that what he says is another person. (laughs) That his word has a living reality to it that our words don't have. He says, let there be light, and there's light because he said it. He doesn't come over here and find a bunch of stuff and use that to make light. He speaks it, and his word is reality. And so this is the word right here. That 
that John's talking about in John 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so you've got, you know, a lot of times what we call the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. Right here, a lot of times we refer to the third person of the Trinity, God the Spirit. And then right here is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, or the Word. And that's all I've got for your scriptures for today, because I think that's more than enough to say the Bible clearly teaches there's one God. But then the Bible, in a way that is confusing for us to a certain extent, refers to God the Father as God, and God the Son as God, and God the Spirit as God. And so somehow there's one God, and somehow there's three persons who are all God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. How are we supposed to understand that? Number one, first thing about how you're supposed to understand that, God is not like us. If you look at this and you're like, I don't know anybody else that's like that. This doesn't make sense to me. Good. Great start. (laughs) There's nobody else like God. You can't draw a perfect parallel to this. You can't pull any other illustration in the whole world that fully explains this because nothing else is God. And if you think, the only way I'm going to believe this is what God's like is if I can understand how it compares to who I am, you're not God. (laughs) There are ways that you are not like God and no one else is like God, that he is holy and set apart and separate, and he's the only one who's like this. So God's not like us, and then if you want to be more specific in how he's not like us, you could say God is bigger than us, bigger than we are, but I'm going to write us. God is bigger than us. God is more than us. God is more complex than us. And I feel like as long as I'm writing those things, we'd all be, that's true. God's not like us. God is bigger than us. God is more than us. God is more complex than us. And so here's one way to think about God is more than us. For all of us, when you've got one human being sitting here, like the fullness of what we can express is that one human being can express one person. Like the human being, Eric, can have one person, one personality inhabiting that being and expressing that being. That's all he can, that's all he can hold. Right? Eric, the person, expresses Eric, the human being. Chris, the person, expresses Chris, the human being. And there's a distinction between them. Well, God's more complex than we are. God's more than, within God, there's three persons at once. There's more inside God than there is in you and me. There's more to God than there is to you and me. God's nature is deeper and more complex than ours. And that's not actually that weird when you think about it from that direction. Like if I was to say, which one do you think is more likely? That God is just like us or that God is more than us? Which one's more likely? If he's God and he's infinite and we're crea- like he's the creator, the infinite creator, and we're finite creatures, you think he's going to be just like us or he's going to be more than us? Yeah, more. I'm not, and I'm not asking you what that more looks like or what it would be or to imagine. I'm just saying more likely that he's just like us or more, more than us. More likely that you and your finite mind can understand everything about the infinite God or more likely there's some things about the infinite God that will blow your finite mind. Which one's more likely? More likely that the infinite God is going to blow your finite mind. Right? 
more likely that God is exactly what you expected and all your thoughts of him have been right and everything that he reveals about himself will perfectly fit what you've thought all along or more likely that you didn't fully understand him and he's going to reveal some things about himself that challenge and change and shape what you've thought all along. We need to be challenged and changed. So in one sense, it does fit. Now, that doesn't help us understand it. It just helps us understand why we don't understand it, which is a helpful place to start. So here's what we've got then. There's nothing else like God, but we can't, like we can't wrap our minds fully around who he is. This is where illustrations come in. And I don't know if you've ever thought about the purpose of an illustration or how it works. But, and so I, I've got some illustrations for us today. I brought a good old trusty University of Kentucky basketball this morning. And growing up in eastern Kentucky, like, you grew up with a basketball in your hand. And really early, you, you learn how to shoot, like all kinds of shooting drills. And they have you lay on your back to do this, stand up and do this. But they taught you really quickly that the right form, part of the right form when you shoot a basketball, is that you want your wrist to end up what they called a gooseneck. Do you see that? Because you get the, the rotation here. Watch the ball rotate backwards with the gooseneck. And you're more likely to get a shooter's roll and stuff goes in a lot more softly. And it bounces around the rim 20 times, but you'll make it. And so I was ta- I'm talking like elementary school. You learned when you follow through, you need to have a gooseneck. Now, that's a good illustration because I would look at that and be like, do I have a gooseneck? But what if I said, well, there's no eye and there's no feathers and it's not white it, or it's not, you know, whatever color, like, I don't have a beak. That's not a gooseneck. Was that the purpose of the illustration? Do you see how that illustration, a gooseneck, was only illustrating one thing. What should the shape of my wrist be? And if you press that illustration into things it's not trying to illustrate, it's not trying to illustrate color, it's not trying to illustrate texture, it's just illustrating shape. But if you press it into stuff it's not illustrating, the illustration can't do that. And so we can take different illustrations from things we know and we can say, hey, part of the Trinity, this three-in-one God, is like this. But if you press this illustration too far, it doesn't illustrate the fullness of what God's like. Do you see that? And so some of the most common ones you've ever heard, you're like, well, you know stuff already that's one, but it's three. How many have heard the egg illustration? Like you've got one egg, and that egg is a shell and a white and a yolk, right? Like it's only one egg, but it's got three things. Like that's what it's, you've got one God, but he's Father, Son, and Spirit. That's good to a certain extent because you realize how these three distinct things come together to make what you call one being there. That, that you need the shell and the yolk and the, egg, and the white to have an egg. And, and Father, Son, and Spirit are all there in who God is. But the shell is not the egg. And the white is not the egg, and the yolk is not that. They're all part of the egg. You've got to understand, that's where God's different. The Father is God. The full nature of God's in him. And the Son is God, and the full nature of God's in him. And the Spirit is God, and the full nature of God's in him. So it helps us understand how one thing can be comprised of three distinct things and still be one. It's a good illustration in that way. It doesn't help us understand how all three of those persons can be fully God. So Here's what it does help with. Here's what it doesn't. So then we switch gears. How many of you have heard, all right, you've got water. You freeze it. You've got ice. You heat it up. You've got steam or water vapor or gas, however you want to describe it. And it's the, it's the exact same molecules, 
Right? The exact same molecules of H2O can be ice and water and water vapor. So this time, you've got one thing that can be all three. That's helpful. Because that within God, that the Father is the full expression of all of his nature, and the Son's the full expression of all of his nature, and the Spirit's the full expression of all of his nature. Here's where it breaks down. You're either ice or your water or your water vapor. And the ice has to turn into water, and the water has to turn into water vapor. When the ice turns into water, it's not ice anymore. When the water turns into water vapor, it's not water anymore. With, with God, it's not that way. He's always the Spirit, and He's always the Son, and He's always the Father. He is all, like, the one can be all three, but all three are simultaneously there. So it helps us in one way, it doesn't help us in another. Does that make sense? So now, here's the most helpful illustration I've ever had. This comes from C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity. If you want to read his chapter, he's probably way better at it than I am. And uh, my, my trusty, lovely assistants, Sydney and Emery, are going to come help me for this one. So if you all want to come on up, my buddy Emery and my sidekick, Sydney, instead of trying to think our way up to God, because it's so hard for us to do that, I want us to try to think our way down to something more simple than us, because we can understand stuff that's more simple than us. Sometimes, scoot over here, sweetie. Sometimes better that we can understand stuff that's more complicated than us. And so I'm going to draw on here for just a second. You know, we're three-dimensional. Like this direction, this direction, this direction. We're three-dimensional beings. We live in a three-dimensional world as far as space goes. I want you to think your way back with me for a minute, like to one dimension, just a line, like I'm drawing here on the screen. Imagine if you were a one-dimensional creature who lived in a one-dimensional world like this line right here. Now, all you could do is move back and forth on that line. You can't go up and down. You can't go forward and back. You can just go left and right. You, you don't understand anything that's above you, below you, around you. All you understand is on that line. If I were to come into your one-dimensional world and talk about a square, you would have no idea what a square was. But if I said, hey, there's a way that these lines that you already know, they can fit together and be a square. And you're like, but are they still lines? You're like, well, yeah. There's still lines, but they're also a square now. You know, I don't get it. It's, it's more than you've ever been exposed. It's a reality on a level that you can't comprehend. But you know, if I take a line there and a line there and a line there and a line there and just pretend they're all the same length, now we've got a two-dimensional square. So imagine that you can live in a two-dimensional world where you can go this way and you can go this way. And that's what this is for right here, all right? So now we're in flat world. Like You can go up and down on this cardboard, you can go left and right on this cardboard. What you can't do is you can't come out this way, you can't go back this way. So only just on the surface of this cardboard, that's where you live and everything you can perceive. So imagine that we're all flat people, okay? We're 2D people. Now, this three-dimensional ball wants to come and reveal itself to you in 2D world. All right? So here's what it's going to do. It's going to come breaking into your world. And as that 3D ball breaks into your two-dimensional world, what do you see? Can you, in your head, picture what you're going to see just on your slice of two-dimension? Anybody who sees it, say it, because some of us, I, I'm terrible at visualizing stuff like this. What's the cross-section of that ball? A circle. Great. A bunch of you saw it. And at first, do you see how, like, when it first breaks in, can you hold that still, girls? When it first breaks in, like, it's just the smallest little circle right there on the tip of the ball. And then as that ball comes through, do you see the circle keeps getting bigger? And so either, if I were to ask you in two-dimensional world, 
What did you see? I think you're going to say one or two. You're either going to say, I saw a tiny circle that kept getting bigger until you get halfway across the ball, and then it started getting smaller again and disappeared. You would describe it as a circle getting larger and then getting smaller. Now, was it ever a circle? No. It's a ball. It's a sphere. But that's all that you can perceive. This thing's too complicated for you to understand it fully in the reality. But, but everything you see really is part of it. Every little circle that you saw. Now, the other way you may describe it is, I saw a whole bunch of circles. I saw a really little circle, and then a little bit bigger circle, and a bigger circle, and a bigger circle. And then I saw the biggest circle, and then I saw some smaller circles. And in your mind, this ball would be divided into all these little pieces that you saw sequentially. Do you see that? But you can't put that together in your head into a ball because you've never seen anything three-dimensional. It's beyond where you've been. Girls, you did awesome. They did ask if they could be the ball, and I told them they could do that for their help. So Sydney wants to... Like, imagine Sydney revealing herself to you. And that first slice, like, the first thing you get with her, and then maybe help, you just get a tip of her nose. Like, I saw the tip of a nose. And I saw a little bit of... I saw some glasses. And then the glasses disappeared, and I saw some eyes. And then I saw a little bit of hair, right? But do you see how you would never get her whole face at once? Because you can only see what fits in your world. Same way with Emery. Saw a little bit of a nose, a head. I saw, I saw some red piece of cloth for just a second, a red thread. I saw some hair. But you never get it all at once. Now, thanks, girls. You all can go sit down if you want to. That was very helpful. I appreciate it. The more complex thing trying to break into the more simple world, the simple world can't fully comprehend the fullness of what it is. But the, the more complex thing, if you break it down into pieces that fit into that world, the world can comprehend the pieces. That's the point right now. Do you see that? So if God exists in a spiritual dimension that's more complicated than what we can comprehend, if in the spiritual world where God lives, one being can consist of three separate persons. We don't understand that here, right? But if he's going to break into our world and reveal himself, one of the ways he does it is he breaks himself down into pieces that we can understand in our world. So he comes to us and it's like, we can't understand the whole ball at once because we're flat and two-dimensional. But we can understand each little circle. And so we can't understand this three-in-one being this one God who has three persons inside of him all at once. We don't understand that, but we can understand God the Father, and we can understand God the Son, and we can understand God the Spirit separated out, in a sense, into the way that you and I exist as individual people. And so if he is more complex than us and he breaks into our world, this is exactly how he'd reveal himself. Do you see that? And just like it would be really hard for somebody who lived in a line world to figure out how in the world can lines get put together to make a square, or somebody that lives in a 2D world to try to figure out how can two-dimensional objects get put together to make a cube. Right? Like If you lived in flat world, how in the world? What's a cube? And you're like, well, there's six squares in it. Well, are they still squares? Yeah, but there's something more than that too. They're also a cube when you put them. What's a cube? 
And then you, back, you would back up with them. Well, you know how a square is actually four lines? And you put those four lines together, it makes a square? Well, imagine putting six of those squares together to, make, to move up a level. You're like, I don't get it. I mean, I, I can see how it works. And so for us, it's like, you know how one person gets connected to one nature, and that's one being? Well, imagine three persons being fully connected as the same being, all expressing the same nature, but still being three persons. And we're like, I don't get it. Yeah, because we don't exist on a level that complex. That's the best I can give you for the Trinity. There's one God. He's fully united with himself, within himself. He's the only God. And his nature, his personality is so full and rich and complex that he's that one God is expressed as three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, who are all fully God. It's not three separate gods. It's one God. But also, they are three distinct persons. That it's not, the other one that they'll give you is like, I'm, I'm a son to John and Nancy. I'm a husband to Christy. I'm a father to Emory and Sid. Like, here's this one person in three roles, which that's helpful again. But to really be an illustration of the Trinity, be like each of my roles, we have to fully be a person. Like to have its own existence fully expressing who I am. And so God the Father is fully God, and God the Son is fully God, and God the Spirit is fully God. So, if that's true, here's the part where it comes home for us now, and you've been patient, thank you. I want you to think about these two things, implications for us, and then give you a couple minutes to share things that may have stood out to you this morning, truths about God. The first one's this, God is complete in himself. One of the ways that you may have heard it before, some people say, why did God create? And people will give the answer, well, he was lonely. He wanted to have people that he could love. And that's not true. God wasn't lonely. From all eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have been in perfect relationship with one another. He's never been alone because he's been with himself, within himself. He's had perfect loving relationship. The Father has loved the Son perfectly, forever. The Son has loved the Father perfectly, forever. The Father and Son have loved the Spirit perfectly, forever. The Spirit has loved the Father and Son perfectly, forever. God has never lacked or needed anything. He has had it all within himself. And that gives you this then, that in the very nature of who God is, God is a giver, and God is love. God was not waiting, right, to create in order to love. It wasn't like God didn't love, didn't express love until he created. God, in his very nature, go infinitely far back into the past, and Father, Son, and Spirit have always been loving one another. That love is at the heart of who God is. That love has always been expressed within God himself. And so when he creates, he doesn't create out of a lack, like I'm lonely and I need somebody else. He creates out of a fullness where he is so full, he has everything within himself, and he chooses to create something else that he can share himself with, that he can give himself to. That's the real gospel, that God has everything And he chooses to create so he can give himself and give what he has to others. He can share himself with us. In his love, he is a giver who gives of himself. He doesn't create us 
so that he can be loved. He creates us because he already is love. And so man-made religion, like when it all gets flipped upside down by sin and our flesh and our confused minds, we come as if God needs something from us, demands something of us, and we've got to give that to God so that God will love us and we'll be right with God. That's what any kind of man-made religion in the world tells you. It's anything other than Christianity, and it's what, unfortunately, we often twist Christianity into. We bring our natural thoughts into it and make Christianity this message of, here's what you have to do so that God will love you. Here's what you have to give God. That is not the nature of who God is. God needs nothing. He's had it all within himself forever. There's never been anything missing from him, no loneliness in him, no lack in him. He's full. And the message of Christianity is God made you so that he can overflow to you, give to you, that his abundance within himself, he will share himself with you. And the message of the gospel is he's come to you to do that, to give you what you need. You don't do something so that he will love you. He loves you and gives himself to you, and that becomes the power and the spirit by which you do these things. Do you see that? This is core to understanding the gospel. But then also this. Relationships. Are at the core of all reality. When nothing else exists but God, God in his very nature is a relational God in relationship with himself. The Father in relationship with the Son, the Father in relationship with the Spirit, the Son in relationship with the Father, the Son in relationship with the Spirit, the Spirit in relationship with the Father, the Spirit in relationship with the Son. Now, this isn't some secondary thing where God's like, hey, it'd be a good idea for you to have a relationship with me and a relationship with each other. This is the very fabric and core of all reality. This is who God is, the one who defines all things. All things flow out from him and are defined by him, and he's a relational God. And he has created you, first and foremost, to know that relationship with him. That he sent his son to reveal him, right? That the son, God the son comes that you will know who God is. And then God the spirit does a miraculous work in your heart that you can be connected to who God is and you can fully know God by the work of the father, son, and spirit that you can become one with God in this relationship. United to him and connected to him on a spiritual and supernatural level where your relationship with God defines who you are. And then he says, I want you to be in that same type of relationship with one another because if you're connected to me and you're connected to me and you're connected to me, then you should be connected to one another in me. That's John 15 where he's saying, as I have loved you, so now you love one another. When we talk about small groups and community groups and, and being involved in each other's life and having you know, the, the, like these really the, this core group of people that you share your life with and that you confess to and you pray with and pray for and you walk through the hard stuff together and you celebrate the good stuff together. When we're talking about making disciples and really investing our lives in people and being connected with people, we're not talking about some secondary thing. Like, this would also be a good idea if you did this. We're talking about this is the whole thing. This is because of who God is. This is what it means to be part of his body, the body of Christ. Members of one body connected together, living together, sharing life together. That love, like real love, the, the love of God and relationship is at the core of who God is. 
the core of how he relates to you, the core of how he wants you to relate to him by the Spirit, through the Son, and the core of how he wants us to relate to one another, that this is what it means to be God's people, to be his church. And I know that all the stuff about the Trinity, like maybe it's way, way out there, and you're like, man, we sat here for a long time, and I don't know if I understand any of that. Okay. Do you understand that God is love and that relationships are crucial in the kingdom of God? If you'll walk away with those two things today, we're way down the road into understanding who God is. That for you to love God, to know his love and love him, and then as his love fills you to love other people, Jesus says everything hangs on that. Love God with all you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. Like if you walk away with that and then you look at your heart and you say, you know what, that's not in me, not the way that God loves. I fall so far short of loving him that way and I fall so, so far short of loving other people that way. And it will bring you to a point of honest confession and brokenness where you say, God, the only thing that you say matters, I don't do it the way that you tell me to do it. I don't. And I need you. I will never do it the way you tell me to do it unless you give it to me and you live it in me and you change my heart and your spirit produces that in me. That's the only way. That's the only way we'll love the way that God loves. That's the only way we'll be his people, his children, his family, his church, is if he does it in us. Any thoughts? Five minutes for you. We're doing great. I did terrible last week. I'm so sorry. I kept you too long, and I apologize, but we're doing great this week. So five minutes, thought right here. Yes. Uh-huh. She's asking about the difference between Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, or Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and it's just a difference in two translations. Um, the, the Greek word is the word for spirit, and so that's probably the more accurate translation, but some older English translations. And you could check me on this. I wonder if when it went from Greek to Latin, if maybe they used the word for ghost, or maybe if ghost and spirit were interchangeable. And I don't know for sure off the top of my head, but it was, it's just, and, and you know how sometimes even in like our pretend fiction world, we'll use the word ghost, and like a ghost appeared in the house. The spirit was chased, like we use them interchangeably. For a while, words are weird, but they had some overlapping meaning. But I think that spirit better captures probably the original meaning um, in, in both Hebrew in the Old Testament and Greek in the New Testament. But as long as what we mean by that phrase is the third person of the Trinity, who is the, the spirit who has now come to live in Jesus' followers the way that he promised, you know, I wouldn't fight with somebody over saying Holy Ghost, but I would say Holy Spirit may be like a slightly more accurate translation, but they both mean third person in the Trinity. Is that helpful? Yeah. yeah. What else? One or two other things? And that, it can be a question, but can also be an insight, the truth. Yeah. So, well, first of all, I didn't even go to Genesis 127, but do you hear it there? Let us make man in our image. Who's the us and our, the plural there, except for the fact that God's plural within himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. I, I, thanks for pointing that, bringing that one up. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of conversation about, like, 
the parts of who we are. You know, are we, are we body and spirit, body, soul, and spirit? Do those pieces somehow correspond to the three persons of the Trinity? But what we would say is that us being made in God's image, that at the very least, without, you know, with taking two minutes on this right here, is that there is some sort of correlation, even if it's like, here's the real thing, and here's the shadow behind me, you know, like, here I am, here's my shadow. There's a correlation between me and my shadow, and there's certain things you can learn from me by looking at my shadow, even though my shadow can't give you the fullness of who I am. And I think that's almost like that who God is has been imprinted on, like his image has been given to us, and we reflect him in certain ways, and we also, we're patterned after him in certain ways, but I do think that it seems like because he's the creator and we're creatures, because he's infinite and we're finite, that, that we can't give the full picture of who he is apart from Jesus. Um, and so I would say that, yes, I think there's some parallels, and there's also some mystery there in exactly how our nature relates to his nature. Um, and I'll leave it at that for now. I don't know if that's helpful or not, but I understand what you're asking, if that's worth anything. <laughs> anything else? What do you got, Adam? Oh, boy. He said he may be opening Pandora's box. Yeah. For us to go wrong to punish us. In truth, anytime we turn away from accepting his generosity, we're punishing ourselves. Yes. Yeah, no, that's not, I don't, I mean, it's a Pandora's box in the sense that I think we could spend six months on it. And, and even, we could walk through the whole Bible with that thought. But you see this over and over and over in the whole Bible. But basically what he said, and I'm, he said it differently and probably better than this. So if you didn't hear him, talk to him later. Because if I foul it up, it's my fault. But this is what was popping in my head. Like start at the very beginning when God creates. There's God and there's nothing else. And so one way to think about it is whatever God does is completely because of God. <laughs> because there's nothing outside him. Like it's just him. And there's nothing about us or anything else that can prompt him to do what he does. Because we're not there. And there's nothing about us that can earn or deserve what he's about to do because we're not there, <laughs> right? That, that can't be why God does what he does. He does it out of a place of freedom and love, not out of earned wages or owing or any, or any kind of compulsion outside himself. It's just him. He's the only reason for what he does. And who he is is love and relational and full and infinite at his very core. And so even in the act of choosing to create, this is an act of grace where he gives something to nothing. He gives everything to nothing. And there was nothing in that nothing to compel him to do that. It was all within him. And so the... like. The heart of his relationship, the foundation of his relationship, the beginning of his relationship with all of us is a relationship of a God who loves and gives to us. And we in our sin broke that. Like Adam and Eve have a God who gave them everything and they turn away from him. I don't know if we can recognize like just the, the massive tragic implications of that. How 
unfathomably heinous it would be to turn away from a being like that and say, I'm going to do it my own way. And then we've all followed in their own footsteps. And when we do, the biggest problem that we have is, here's the God of everything and the God of love. We're turning away from everything and from love. What do you think you're going to find out here? Nothing. Emptiness. Like the, the deepest, darkest despair of wrath that you can know because you've walked away from everything and from love. And, and yeah, it, it, God is sitting here pouring himself out to us in grace and love in Jesus. And we can choose to turn and jump into the, the river of grace and love that he gives in Jesus, and it will be infinite forever. But if we turn away from that, there's nothing else to turn to. Like, yes, like he will justly punish our sin if it helps you to think of it in those terms, but it's because there's, there's nothing else but that when you turn away from everything and from love. And it's a great place for us to end because my last thought was, if we start to get this concept, just, I mean, like this, I don't mean like this, but we start to get it like this, I want you to think about what really happened at the cross. Forever. Like all eternity past, I don't know what that means. Do you know what that means? Like go back a billion years and you still have forever to go. And you go back another billion years and you still have forever. Like you just keep going on. For that long, the father and son have been in perfect loving relationship. Fully satisfied with one another. Like, every, like everything you would ever want in someone loving you. The father loved the son that way and the son loved the father that way. And they needed nothing and they lacked nothing. There was nothing for them to gain because they already had everything. And the son says, I'll give that up. I'll know what it's like to lose that so that you can have that. He gives to you what you could never deserve. And the way he gives it to you is by giving it up. He experiences what it's like to lose his father. When, when darkness covers the earth and the wrath of the Father is poured out on the Son and the Son becomes sin for us. That's how 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it. That he who knew no sin became sin for us. And so now he's not experiencing the perfect love of the Father. He's experiencing what it's like to be separated from the perfect love of the Father. To be out in the nothingness and the wrath and, and, and broken completely from the one he's always known. Do you, do you know the agony? Can you imagine having always known fullness and perfection what that moment is and then the father that he's loved the son perfectly that this is the son he loves with all the fullness of God all the perfect love of God and somehow within him there's enough love for you that he says I will resist my love for my son and I'll let him die this way I'll turn away from him I'll let him experience the nothingness of being separated from me in a real sense. I won't love him because it won't be him in that moment. It'll be your sin. Like What is happening in the gospel? The wonder and the mystery and the majesty of the love of God for us. That God would cause himself pain to love you. That God would break himself to make you whole. That God would destroy his own perfect relationship in that moment so that you could have a perfect relationship with him. 
Oh, the depth and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. We'll never peer into the bottom of it. We will never fully understand it. But I pray you'll believe it. Believe that that is the love of God for you in Jesus. Believe that that is what Jesus has done for you. Believe that that is what the Father offers you to be his children, to be loved by him in that way. Believe it and trust him and worship him. And may his spirit live in us and make us his people and his church. And so we're going to pray that right now, and then we're going to sing a song of worship together. And I pray that the more your mind is blown by who he is, the more you'll worship him in awe of who he is right now. And some of our pastors and elders and and staff and wives will be down here if you want to talk to somebody or pray with them. But let's pray together, and then let's sing together. Father, thank you for the truth of who you are. Thank you, Father, that you've revealed pieces so that we can understand, that we can know you truly, even when we don't understand fully. And Father, for each piece that we need to know, I ask you by your Spirit, open our hearts and minds to understand you and be changed by who you are. And then for the pieces that we we can't understand, I pray that we'll be in awe of your greatness, of the wonder and the mystery and the, the fullness and the infiniteness of who you are. And I pray, Father, that it would prompt something in our hearts that nothing else in all reality can prompt. That we would worship you in a way that nothing else could ever be worshipped. Worship you alone for who you are. Father, I ask that by your grace and by your spirit in the name of Jesus that you would keep making this true in us, building us into your people, into your church, using us to make you known. That as Jesus lives in us by his spirit, that we will be the expression and the word of who you are because he's in us. Father, use us in that way in your world for your purposes, for your glory, for your worship. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.